Welcome to another episode of Catalyzing Radical Systemic Change, where it's all about mapping and cross-pollinating what I think are the necessary building blocks towards a planetary civilization ahead. And for today's uh, edition, I want to start with a quote. And it says, in the past, changing the self and changing the world were often regarded as separate endeavors and viewed in either or terms. But in the story of the great turning, they are recognized as mutually reinforcing and essential to one another. So the quote is from Gianna Macy and Chris uh, Johnston from the very famous book, um, Act of Hope, that I also read a couple of times. And to, to, to frame the conversation today uh, with, with Glenda, um, in my own biography from an early age, so I come from a rather left-wing activist background, I was completely overwhelmed as a child with uh, the situation that I perceived the planet uh, to be in. And today we call it omni-crisis, multi-crisis, polar crisis. So when we look at the state of the affair with runaway climate change, plastic in the oceans, large micro, micro, uh, macroeconomic changes, so the, the, the way ahead into the future seems to be dominated by chaos, large disruption, whole narratives not working anymore. Also, in a way, it seems we're in the last stages of what I would call late state capitalism going haywire. And at the same time, we need to adjust to chaos. But in my understanding of my nervous system, and I reckon we, we share more or less the same nervous system as human beings, is we have not really developed our nervous system since we were roaming around as hunters and gatherers and the days were pretty much like you know shaped by the seasons and there were not that many disruption during one generation or uh, some generations so my first question for you glenda today i know there is a bunch of change techniques out there and in the first couple of minutes, I'm trying to understand where does human system dynamics fit into the puzzle? There's so many other possible toolboxes, change techniques. What are the specifics? What makes it different? Where does it complement? Yeah, so these are a couple of uh, questions to, to start the conversation. Do you always start with such easy questions? That's, <laughs> yeah. a really, that's a great one, Alex. That's it's a great one. Beginners. The podcast is not for beginners. <laughs> that's no, right. But, I mean, we so got... so there are two ways. So it's a great question. So there are two ways, really, that I see the way that HSD human systems dynamics. I'll just call it HSD fits with the existing world of understanding and practice. So one is on the theoretical side. It fits in as a kind of intersection of systems thinking, which includes more than 75 approaches to ways to talk about systems in holistic ways, systems thinking, complexity thinking, which is a different theoretical frame. And then within that, ancient philosophy, and which is linked to, I think, indigenous wisdom as well. So there are ways that we think and talk about ourselves in narrative, in civilization. There are ways that we think and talk about the world out there in systems thinking and modeling language. And there are ways that we're standing at the edge of a new scientific paradigm in complexity, dealing with open rather than closed systems. And so the other approaches to change management in a theoretical frame mostly ignore all of that, <laughs> or they dive deeply into one of those or the other. So theoretical models that work with change have really clear and specific, usually fairly narrow if they're academics, um, histories of traditions in which they Right. So there are ones that come out of the systems tradition. There are ones that come out of the complexity tradition. There are ones that come out of the broader humanist philosophy tradition. Um, but HSD really draws from all of those and integrates into something that is coherent or tries to be coherent, but not closed. So that's the theoretical 
space is that it's integrative across multiple and that it is open. So most of the theoretical frames that you know are ones that begin with a boundary about what's the scope, what are the assumptions, what are the expectations, what are the definitions of terms, and then within that frame you define what the knowledge is in a taxonomic system or interdependency or network or some kind of picture. Human systems dynamics is open boundary, which is to say it starts with the middle of a simple concept and then iterates it in a variety of contexts and spaces and emerges out into another pathway. So Mandelbrot did that in a mathematical system, beginning with a simple equation and generating fractals. We begin with simple practices and generate adaptive capacity for all levels of human interaction from intrapersonal up to global perspectives, but we do not try to bound what that work is. So it's integrative and it's open. Integrative, open and fractal. I, I think it's very interesting because I myself in my own language often quote Mandelbrot for Mandelbrot Menge, like a self uh, self-replicating referential self-referential self fractal mm -hmm. um when 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 you say open source um i think it would help the listeners to draw from the genesis because you're into developing this framework with thousands of others of people on the planet since multiple decades so I think it makes sense to, to look a little bit into the history, where it came from, and also where it is uh, standing today. Yeah, in that sense, in terms of our open intellectual property policy, I'd like to hold that for just a second. And to talk about the second way that we're different is in practice and the way we approach practice. But when we talk about open in terms of the systems world, it's a systems boundary kind of question that HSD is not a bounded knowledge set. It is a constantly expanding knowledge set. The other way that we're different, so that's how we're different in terms of the theoretical frame. The way we're different in the practical frame, the practice frame, is that we are very focused on individual agency and the possibility of sense-making and acting at all different scales at the same time. So the individual action, the larger team action, the larger global action, all of those things are brought together. And so the idea of focusing on practice as a way to engage theory and learning. And so our practical perspective, there are many places that stand in complexity work that really are not all that practical. They describe what's going on, but they don't really help you know what to do. So one of the biggest weaknesses of, of systems dynamics is that you can draw this fascinating, fabulous systems dynamics model, but you don't know what to do. And there are ways in which the humanist philosophers could tell you what to do in a context that no longer exists, but it doesn't translate to the other context. So we are incredibly pragmatic and engaged and so that's, those are, those are the main distinctions. Then going to your other question about what's the history, how did we end up in such a strange place? Why would we be standing in this strange space, which has um, benefits, but also costs for standing in a, an untrodden or less trodden ground. Um, one of the threads comes from my study of the history and philosophy of science reading great books and inquiring into great books in mathematics and science, the sciences and language and music and philosophy, literature um, in my undergraduate work. It was kind of a 17th century liberal arts education. And so that brings me to a picture of a large arc of evolving paradigmatic shifts and adaptations over time. So that's one of the reasons, one of the historical facts that I see us placed in a historical evolution. Um, the second thing that was a source was that I was an entrepreneur in the late 1980s, running a technical training and documentation company, using pretty much intuitive leadership 
integration practice, really excited about engineering applications to leadership, project management, about being able to work with clients. And in a matter of about six months, everything blew up at the same time. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. And here I was as an entrepreneur with just massive issues and challenges and was just at the end of my rope and deciding that I was needing to close. Um, and I read lots of leadership. I thought, surely someone else has been in this position before, and it's time for me to read some leadership and management literature and figure out what I'm supposed to do. And so I read extensively, but I didn't find anything that was particularly useful. Either the literature said, just make a decision and make it happen, that the entrepreneurial approach is single-minded and single-source and focusing, focusing, focusing. And then on the other side, there was a very soft, constructivist, humanistic approach to management that said, just love them and everything will work out fine. And neither of those seemed to work for me. And so I couldn't find a theory base to support the practice that I wanted to build. It was about then that I got interested in complexity and started to read one of the first popular books in English, which was called Chaos, Making a New Science. And I'm sure you've, it was probably one of your earliest books too. And every chapter opened my eyes to some important leadership practice. Either it explained something I'd done wrong or it gave me an idea about something I might do differently. And so that place where the complexity science and the systems and the historical perspective about epistemology all came together in that moment. And because I'm basically a pragmatist, I started practicing, I started teaching, I started writing about it and evolving the work in an iterative way. And so in that iteration, people would join me, they would learn. We shared the intellectual property openly. So this is the open source strategy that we have is we want this knowledge, these practices in the hands of people that they can use, practice, expand, adapt, adjust this work so that it's a generative, continually growing, expanding work. And if we bound it into as if it were a physical object that we could own, <laughs> um, it would not have that biological generative opportunity. And so since in 2003, We've been doing that with the HSD Institute, inviting people in, almost like bringing them into a greenhouse where things are growing and shifting and changing and we're learning and we're harvesting fruit all the time. And we give people cuttings from that. Some people take a little bit of the tomato plant. Somebody else will take a bit of the iris and they go and take those and plant them in the places where they are growing and learning and doing the work that needs to be done. And then they share and bring that fruit back again. And so it's that really yeasty, to mix a metaphor, a yeasty generative engagement that we have with an agreement that people who take from the Institute cite the source, tell them where the seeds came from, and share back the fruits of what they learn and teach, not necessarily to us, but to the rest of the community. And so it's that process of iteration and sharing and learning, continually pushing boundaries, addressing and adjusting what might be possible, that has been the process for evolution over time. There, so this open, open source is really, really key to our identity. I want to stay with open source. Are there any boundaries to open source? I wonder, whatever, if you're not quoted or if you feel like a certain important pattern methodology uh, tool uh, out of out of your set is modified in a way that you see not congruent with the original code anymore Well, that's a really good question. And over the years, there have been a total of three people whom we knew 
who took the HSD work and presented it as their own with slight variation without giving us credit. And so that was for us another possibility for learning. And so we were in touch with them and said, we see this or I've heard about this. Can you tell us how this fits in your perspective in the HSD simple rules? And in what way do you feel that this is yours and not hours. And those dialogues have been really, really interesting. Um, sometimes it's an, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that I should have done it because the work had become so much ingrained in their own that they didn't recognize the distinction. So sometimes it's just a, a new awareness, consciousness of what was going on. Sometimes they find it important to be able to monetize what's there and they feel that they couldn't monetize it unless they claimed it and built a wall around it and so the monetization becomes really important and in that case we say that's your need and you need to fulfill it but these are the things that we would like for you to shift about the ways you're presenting it so that it is your monetized object and not our open space object um We've never seen the work really used badly ourselves. We've talked to potential clients who have worked with other people who were not adept at sharing the ideas. And so they didn't come across clearly. Um, and so that is a problem, but we don't know any way really to stop that. But I, I can tell you a funny story, Alistair. Um, I was in Delhi and I'd been there about a week. I was getting ready to leave and I had eaten something really not good the night before. I was feeling really sick and worried about getting on a plane to be for so long and so sick. And my host said, there's one more place we need to stop. It's a school for youth leadership and they really want to meet you. And I said, okay, we can go, but I'm feeling really bad. So I'm not going to be able to talk. I'm just going to, I'll go, I'll meet them. We walked in and there was a circle of about 40 people in the room and they were all teachers and education is really close to my heart. And so I asked them, each person to give a sentence about the work that they do so that I could hear a bit of the context around the room and get a sense of what the environment was. Um, and so they said the people who didn't speak English spoke and then someone would translate so we had these 50 sentences and many of them said things like, well, what we do is set conditions for systems to change. There are three factors that determine a condition. And so as people were going around, they were quoting my work. We clearly not realizing it was my work. And so we got around the circle and I said to the person who was the head of schools, um, this is really lovely and interesting and exciting work. Do you realize that it's mine? And he said, no, I didn't. I'm going to look. He said, I don't remember where I got it. I don't remember where it came from, but I'm going to go back and see and look. And he had read my, my 2001 book, Facilitating Organization Change, which was the first place that I really talked about this pattern logic and he had so deeply absorbed it into his curriculum that he had forgotten where it had come from and I celebrate that if that could happen around the world and people would use the work for good purposes and good places it would just be um, a thing worth celebrating it's more important that people use it and set conditions for transformative change than it is that my name be on it I totally appreciate that. I wonder from the theoretical foundation to the genesis to radical open source, what else should the listener know before we dive deeper into the practice, the applications, give practical examples, best practice examples? Is there anything besides the genesis from the different sciences and the radical open source? I think probably those the fact that we are radical theory, deep and ingrained in theory, and radical action. So that simple rule that we have about search for what's true and useful, 
and that we stretch both of those deeply. I think that's fundamental to the work that we do. We push it, push action as long as we can push it, doing what we think is working until it doesn't work. And then we go back to the theory and push the theory until we can't go any further. And then we go back to the practice. So that iteration of theory, theory to practice, which is characteristic of every major paradigm shift that I've ever studied in the history of science, is that it has roots both in thought and practice. I think that's the only other thing. And that it uh, and that it is hopeful and fun, that in spite of the fact that we're in a time of tremendous chaos and uncertainty that overwhelms us and possibilities that we have no idea how they're going to come or where they're going to come or how we're going to find our ways through it individually, institutionally, as a race, how, how that's going to happen. In spite of that, Human Systems Dynamics gives you hope and possibility for whatever's next. And so it's a bit um, ironic in that. The only other quote I read on the website, certainty used to be the foundation of knowledge and action. Those days are gone. Today, uncertainty is the only certainty. Human system dynamics pattern logic helps you make decisions and take action even when you can't predict or control anything in your world. I really think that's, that's like at the very core of call it a methodology for the lack of a better word of HSD. Let's riff off that quote. What, what does it exactly mean and how does that differ with other change methodologies? Oh, it's a great, a great one. Well, first, this idea about certainty, this goes back to the theoretical idea of a closed system. So Gödel says, and you can probably pronounce that better than I, but Gödel, the mathematician, said that you can only have internal consistency if a system is closed. That as long as the system is open, it cannot be internally consistent. And so the moment that we acknowledge that our human systems, our civilizations are by nature open, then we have to give up that dominance of structures that are internally consistent. We can have moments of consistency, we can have pieces of clarity, but having a system as a whole that is knowable and bounded is simply not possible in our worldview and so once you get to that point yeah do, do, do you mean that on an ontological level i'm really curious yes. because i get it i mean it totally feels ontological right it, it, it feels like just after 25 years of meditation practice and what well you sit right <laughs> and you watch a never-ending or listen to a never-ending train of thought so if all human systems are inherently open, how does then human system dynamics facilitate, teach, or train ways to not cope with the uncertainty, but to be smarter, more creative, more joyful, finding the right acupuncture points within those systems? Hmm. Um, yes, and so the distinction between ontology and epistemology is a really interesting one in pattern logic, because with a pattern, that distinction disappears. So when we talk about pattern logic, we talk about in reality, there are these conditions that are set that hold the potential for action in an ontological realm. And it just so happens that those same characteristics are the ones that epistemologically we use to make meaning of the sense. They're the same things. And so for us, that boundary between epistemology and ontology disappears. So we stand at a place that is kind of post postmodern. Some people call it a realist philosophy. Um, 
and so when I say things, I think about them often in terms of, so the ontologically, yes, that makes sense, as you say, sitting and watching the world move forth, and theoretically, of being able to see things in relationship to each other. So given that, the question is, how do you succeed if you're living in a system that is open? Now, I should back up a little bit. Not all human systems are open. All healthy human systems are open systems. So that there are human systems that are closed systems and they may be able to persist for a bit, but ultimately they're destructive for themselves and individuals in them. So this is a healthy generative human system will be open. Um, yeah. And so what do we do? So there are three fundamental practices that we believe give the capacity to adapt in whatever kind of un uncertainty happens. And those three capacities, and they, we name them in terms of tools, but essentially they're deep practices, much like mindfulness practice, that you don't learn them and check them off. You don't get to be a master at this or that. You practice them over time in context and continue to build your adaptive capacity, your muscles for engaging with uncertainty. So are we ready to go there for what are the three? I reckon, yeah. Um, I, I have the feeling that was good for the theoretical foundations now. I want to give people, you know, the more the felt experience of like, okay, how does that work actually? Exactly. So let's go there and let's start with a particular case. And I'll show how that case allowed us to use the three tools in an adaptive process. Um, and this one is with youth. Now, we work in many, many different contexts and across many different challenges. We work on lots of wicked issues. But this one was particularly with youth. There is today a major, major tragic consequence of the current state of the world, partly from COVID, partly from other things. But youth globally are in a desperate space, space of despair. Much research, research shows it. In every nation, in every culture, the youth are at risk. The youth are in trouble in our globe. Um, and so that wicked issue is coming up for us in many, many places. I'm sure you've seen it, Alistair, too. Places and times when youth have given up that it's hard for them to find hope. So there's one of our clients who's an international education association who decided to bring youth together into groups, bring youth into those circles who are doing wonderful, exciting things and have them share with each other and establish projects that they might work forward together. So we worked with them to design it. These were the ways that we used those three fundamental capacities in helping shape an intervention to give hope for youth globally. So the first thing is that we wanted to do something that would continually emerge. We knew there would not be a single solution that would work in all places for all youth and all children in all places, that each community would be unique. And so we need, knew that we would need an iterative decision-making process. And so we used what we call the core tool of adaptive action. What is the first question? Three-step iterative process. What is the current situation with the youth who will be together in this first meeting in Chicago? What are the ways that they're the same? What are the ways that they're different? What are the questions they're asking? So the client had planned to come and preach at them and tell them about what is possible. And as we looked at what was happening among the groups, we realized that the students themselves, the youth themselves, had tremendous gifts for what was possible and what might come. So our what step then led to the second step of our planning, which was so what? So what if there are these rich differences among these youth? So what can we do to leverage those and to support those and to, to harvest the energy in those? 
And the now what was essentially to put them into, invite them into pair dialogue and trio dialogue and to host conversations where each of them was invited to define what their gifts are to the world and to share those gifts with others who were in the room. And so they were giving and receiving the gifts of themselves in this space in this possibility. Some of them were athletic stars. Some of them had read good books. Some of them liked to write poetry. Some of them grew vegetables in the back garden. But that opportunity then set conditions. We saw what was the pattern. So what was the potential in the pattern? Now what were we going to do to help set conditions for that pattern to bear fruit? So that's one tool is the adaptive action. The second tool is pattern logic, and it allows us to see what are the critical aspects of those students. So we might have said, looking at this group of students, what is their socioeconomics? What are their ages? What are their sizes? What are their interests? So there would be many, many different ways we could characterize this group of non-normal youth. But the way that we do instead is to ask three questions. What are the similarities? How are they all the same? All of these students, what do they hold in common? What are the differences that make a difference among them? We saw their gifts differing. And how do they connect with each other? Well, we realize that they don't connect with each other by preparing presentation or by um, theorizing, but by talking with each other about themselves, that their exchanges at that age and in that development to talk about themselves was the connection that would work. And that pattern logic, that discipline of looking things at things through that mirror allowed us to see them in a way that was useful for them, not for us, but useful for them in the system. And then the third tool, so adaptive action, pattern logic. And the third tool is inquiry. The humility and the openness to be able to turn judgment into curiosity so that humility becomes a core competence in dealing in a world of uncertainty. The moment that I begin to feel or express uh, a level of expertise or certainty or privilege or power in that way it's in that moment that the world collapses and sometimes it needs to collapse into a particular space and time but if I want to stay in an open generative creative space then to stand there in inquiry is the competency I need to do that I mean this sounds very simple almost simplistic so is it that you think for the lack of a better word the building blocks of human system dynamics are so on such a deep code level hence it's possible to open source them. Hence, they are by nature simple, maybe even simplistic. And hence, almost like a grammar that to most people they don't use consciously when they use their mother tongue or advanced enough in another language that you almost forget them once you become aware of the theory behind the practice and action. Mm -hmm. that, yeah, it's a great it observation. It's a great observation. And it also is people before they hear the tools often have been practicing them unconsciously. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's, that's, that's even before, right? So that they have over time and in practice have used them without knowing it, that they have found that it is helpful to work in an iterative process and not to depend on one particular way of 
making sense of the world and to stand in inquiry and that there are people, there are cultures that are more likely to do it. There are individual people for whom that's become a practice. And so for them, HSD becomes naming something they already know. And so I think that's part of why it's so simple. But, you know, if you look back at the major paradigm shifts in history, what happened right before the shift was that things got very, 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 very complicated in the epicycles to explain how the stars moved right before the Copernican revolution. That just got more and more and more and more and more complicated as anomalies were tried to be explained in an old system. And it just gets really, really complicated. On the other side of that paradigm shift, things are incredibly simple because there's an insight that clarifies and builds a structure that can carry on on the other side. And so the, the simplicity of HSD is important. Underlining though, it's not easy. <laughs> it's simple, but it's not easy. It continues to be a challenge to practice consistently and with grace and possibility. And let's, let's, after feeling it's good to, because we're kind of in the middle of the dialogue, is let's assume HSD found building blocks that define uh, human system dynamics, also hence the name. And let's assume a lot more people use them without necessarily even being aware of them using them. Um, Give the listener a sketch, an overview, a metaphor, maybe a couple of stories of the worldwide ecosystem that exists around human system dynamics. Like how many people, how many organizations, how many countries from how many different sectors, because what attracted me most to it, what I found most interesting about it was that it is so heterogeneous. You know, it's not just facilitators. I mean, who usually, you know, does a training in cultural change technique, it's facilitators. So yeah, curious to listen into the ecosystem, the alumni, some best practice examples. Again, ideally from as different as possible, different backgrounds. Hmm, great question. So we have about 900 people who've been trained and certified. Then we have a circle of people who are interested and continue to learn in a variety of ways of about 15,000. And then there are people beyond like this school in India that I didn't know was using it. So there's a space beyond that that I don't know. Um, it is the most heterogeneous grouping of a community that I've ever seen. And it's very loosely connected. So there are people within it who are involved in education. And that includes people who are textbook publishers, people who run big education bureaucracies, people who teach in the classroom, early childhood educators who are teaching in the kitchen, uh, medical educators, so people who are training doctors, physicians, and other healthcare workers, people who are working with um, helping women move into academic technical positions in engineering. So all of those different, so education, which is only one small part, it's a great deal of variety there. There are people who are involved in healthcare, and this goes everything from floor nurses to families who are helping others who are in hospice to people dealing with patterns of death so standing at the door of death and using these tools to pass smoothly from life into death all the way to the centers for disease control and prevention large public health entities administrative institutions physicians, teams, communities that are looking at healthcare and well-being. Um, and that whole combination of health and healthcare. Then there are people who are involved in politics, from political advocacy to decision-making, to people who work in 
global international NGOs um, in healthcare, humanitarian aid, military response and development. There are people in finance and the financial world, which includes uh, traders who are on the trading floor. How do you manage that complexity and chaos? How do you bring a newbie into a trading floor and help them see, understand, and influence patterns in a trading environment? Uh, to tellers, bank tellers, who need to be able to work with old people who can't hear what they're talking about or who can't use technology. So anyone who's standing in a place where they're confronted with challenges that they haven't seen before, who need ways to be creative in responding to those challenges, and who are passionate about making a difference wherever they are, that's really what holds our complex community together. But I can I could give you a particular example, which has just been a great evolving fun opportunity. So in the middle of March 2020, we'd been working with a lot of healthcare clients and we knew with COVID coming, they wouldn't have any time for us. And so we tried to figure out what we could make available to people who are working in the heat of COVID to be able to help them use their adaptive action and inquiry and pattern logic to make a difference. And we decided that we would have a meeting every day on a Zoom. So we opened up a Zoom same time every day, Monday through Friday, and someone brings a wicked issue, something that they're wrestling with, and then they describe it very briefly. And after that description, the rest of us ask them open-ended generative questions, which they don't answer. They just listen to the questions. And the questions come from all different perspectives. This is an open meeting. Anyone can come. Anyone is invited to come. We've had as many as 30 people a day down to five or 10 people a day asking questions, listening to the questions for about 15 minutes. And then at the end of that, the person who brought the issue has a chance to reflect on what they heard, which questions moved them, what they're seeing as possibilities now, how their wicked issue has shifted and then the others in the room reflect on how what they've learned or what questions they asked or what advice they might give. And then at the end of the half hour, we close and everybody goes home. And we've done that Monday through Friday for 30 minutes <laughs> every day since the middle of March 2020. So I think we're on session 750 something. And all of them are recorded. All of them are up on the website. We haven't repeated any wicked issues. We haven't repeated any questions. But what we see there is people are practicing inquiry. What's the wicked issue? So what does it mean? Now what might you do? So it's an adaptive action. It is deeply about inquiry coming from many different perspectives. And everybody is seeing patterns. You start with a wicked issue, a pattern that you can only see in one way, and that's why you feel like you're so stuck on it. But as people ask questions, those, those patterns begin to unwind and unfold, unfurl, and so that there are options for action. So that community has been really the best example of a community where people come together using those three tools in a really focused way. And it's a lovely community. We don't know much about each other. We come from all over the world. Um, many different disciplines, many different historical perspectives, many different practices, many different religious persuasions. And yet in that moment of adaptive action, inquiry and pattern logic, we show up together in a totally generative moment. So that's the world that I imagine, Alistair. If I imagine a world in which HSD has been adopted or absorbed or um, accepted into a community, that the community would show up that way. It's not that they wouldn't have problems. They would have problems. But when they had problems, they would be supportive of each other in unbraiding those problems and finding a pathway through them. 
so that no matter how chaotic, this is where the hope comes from, no matter how chaotic the world is, no matter how much danger or pain or difficulty there is in a world, that we could come together and recognize the pattern for what it is and find an action that leverages whatever agency we have in that space and time. This, what I find very intriguing is it feels like, hmm, feels like a conduit or like devoid of predefined cultural or values bias. I'm still grappling with human system dynamics myself, though, you know, I'm like super excited and, and pretty new to the game uh, uh, on consciously applying the things more methodologically that before some of which I have used, but not in a methodological fashion, nor a sequence, nor with templates. So um, the conundrum that I see is it's kind of like that famous metaphor with the knife, right? A knife can be used to cut a bread or, or kill, kill a human being. Let's, let's not dive into the uh, apocalyptic uh, scenarios, um, but get a little bit more, more hands on. In, in your own imagination, thinking about your legacy and the thousands of people that are using that or tens of thousands of people that are using that and the leverage points that they have, what would be your moonshot for the next three years, five years, 10 years? Hmm. It's a lovely question. And it involves not necessarily a whole system transformation, but an individual person transformation. I would see it as a major transformation and a beginning of whatever a next stage might be. If every person who knows to use the tools of HSD feels compelled to share the tools of HSD. I love it. It's like we're just very different personality types. It, it, it sounds so dry, you know, and I know you're humble. I wonder more um, in terms of some of the wicked issues we collectively face. Is, is there any piece of the puzzle where you think HSD better fits? When, when you think about all the alumni or the, the overall fractal nature of where people apply it, is there any niche where, where you think this is where, where it should stick, this is where it's desperately needed, or this is where I don't yet see some of the work methodologically applied? I don't see any place where it would not work. And I can give you an example about why that would be true. So during COVID, there was this question among people who do invest in environmental sciences and people who invest in public health globally. And there was a recognition in COVID that there'd been a lot of talk previously about the fact that there would be a pandemic but in the midst of the pandemic, then the question is, how can those two infrastructure investment centers globally come together and work together? And their kind of standard approach would be to say, we're going to have 10 points. We're going <laughs> to do a set of goals that we're going to work on. Everybody's going to work toward the same goals. And there's going to be a finite closed system solution. We're going to de design a solution, then we'll implement it. Well, HSD says instead, at that intersection, what are the patterns that would be possible? What's the variety of approaches that might work? 
how would you know, given any one of a possible million interventions, which ones would be more likely or less likely? How do you generate new ideas as quickly as possible, implement them, test them, see what they do as quickly as possible and with as little risk as possible? And so the multi-solving approach is the pathway that we believe would make a difference there. So a short list of simple rules, a set of key questions that everyone in every scale and every place has that they carry with themselves about that intersection of our physical health and well-being in connection with our natural environment. What does that look like and how does that stand? And complexity scientists call it um, equifinality, <clears throat> that to solve that problem, there's an infinite number of possible pathways and you're going to need them all. And so the better you are at generating pathways, the more likely you are to get the outcome that you're looking for. The more we argue about what's the right path, the less likely we are to walk all the paths that are necessary. So how can we bring to that kind of a massive challenge a discipline that's about multiplicity and possibility rather than a discipline that's about dividing and naming and controlling, investing in that way. Um, and so every wicked issue, we believe, would benefit from this. Now, not just by itself. It has to have context as well. So there have to be con contextual content-oriented intelligence. So I couldn't go into that intersection and solve the intersection of the environment and public health. I'm not saying that because that level of expertise, that knowledge of the patterns, that history, that perspective that people bring is just incredible raw materials to be able to see the pattern. But the trick is they have to look differently because the ways they're looking now and using that intelligence, that expertise that they have is locking them in more and more into the patterns that are giving us the outcomes that are not beneficial. So we need their expertise, but we need their expertise to show up through adaptive action and inquiry and pattern logic. And that, that becomes the real challenge, right? Because people who are experts want to be seen for their expertise. They believe that expertise is going to be the solution. They've since enlightenment, they've been committed to it. They've invested themselves and their institutions in it. That I see as the, the biggest challenge is drawing from that incredible intelligence that our systems currently hold and reforming it so that it is flexible and adaptive and conducive to a generative engagement moving forward. For me, it's not now easy to, 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 to get on to the, to the next question. I think what, what I'm mainly excited about is after some, a couple of decades of that work and me encountering or me rather getting introduced to it. I can only say it's for the first time since I'm 24, so 19 years ago, when I stumbled over integral. We're not mm -hmm. going to dive into integral and dissect that from HSD, but it, it's for the first time that the framework intuitively makes sense and like applying it, getting the methods, the tools, the templates ready simply feels like smoothening an innate capability that I drew myself from various different disciplines. So I reckon one common denominator of the people that are attracted to HSD is one of which is really radical open source. Secondly, I can extend, amend, nudge, tweak, customize, add to, riff off all the other different 
aspects of how I try to navigate complexity, my own methodologies, toolboxes, processes, procedures, whatever. And I think what I'm curious to still listen into when you see at your own, when you try to look at your own ecosystem from a third person perspective, the best practice examples, the leverages, the number of alumni, where it works, the different niches where you see applications. Do you have any gut feeling where that could move into? What that could emerge into? Yes, in two ways. One is more realistic than the other. The less realistic one is that it would become that these three practices would become as embedded in decision making in human systems as as uh, Gantt charts. <laughs> or as project planning tools, or as human resource evolution tools. So all of the things that we just take for granted as being tools of business, that they would be replaced by tools that would be generative, inquiry-based, pattern-based, adaptive action, iterative problem solving. Um, so that, in the extreme case is where I would want to see that happening. And there's some places where we've seen it in bed, but the more practical place that we see is that it enters in the middle of the organization. That there are people who are stuck as middle managers or middle technicians in an organization. They can see things, but they can't act. They've got some power, but not power to do what they think is right. And they are struggling to find a new way to engage. And it's that level of people who aren't so invested in the current state that they don't want to explore. They are strong enough and curious enough and have the privilege really to be able to explore and to bring HSD in and transform it for their context and so then it becomes a practice of the kind of middles, which then leaks naturally down and up and across in organizations. And so that is the path that I see happening. And it's not just for the future. It's what I see happening now. I just see it multiplied many, many, many more times. So that it becomes common sense not just sense. So there's, there's another uh, metaphor that I think might be helpful. Um, and I know that you wanted this to be practical. So I'm thinking that cases might be helpful, but there's one more theoretical thing that I want to say is that there was a time when fire was an energy that was not under control and human beings were at, were victims of it. There was a time when that energy through the steam engine was transformed into a kind of energy that was much more useful in a time and a place. Now, ne unintended negative consequences as well, totally aware, but where a force of nature can be seen and transformed into something which is useful for the common good. I believe that today we're in that place with human beings, that there's a tremendous amount of energy in the human race that is currently being not used because we don't have the mechanism to convert that nascent energy into something that is generative. And I believe that's the role of HSD. And so that hope that we would be able, not we HSD, but we as the human race, would be able to see 
challenges and patterns in the world around us, understand them in useful ways, anticipating ne negative consequences, seeing possibilities, and then to take action and begin it again. And that that is the mechanism by which this human energy, which currently exists in all places and abused in all different ways, might be able to become a commons where choices and work can move forward together. And even though I say that's theoretical, I see it happen. I step into a conflict. I use these tools for people to see the conflict in new ways. It gives them opportunities for choice. They take the choice, the system shifts, and they do it again. And that is the experience that individual people have who are working, people who've brought in a variety of of tasks and projects. So one of our one of our associates is an occupational therapist. And she works with people with Alzheimer's. And when I first met her, we were across the room, we were at a conference, and she'd read some of my work. She came running across the room, she took me by the shoulders and she said, I want to know what happens with the Indian dance. And I said, excuse me, what's the Indian dance? She said, it's a pattern that when you have a room full of Alzheimer's patients, she worked with veterans hospitals in the US. So she had large uh, wards of many, many Alzheimer's patients. And she said, they're standing up, say 30 people standing, these would all be men standing up and just standing still. And one of them will begin to rock and when they do, the ones close to them will begin to rock. And then when they rock, that first one rocks enough, gets far enough, they get out of balance and they take a step. And then over time, the whole room self-organizes. So they are all marching in line. And she said, I want to understand how that happens. And so that's the work that she's done. And today, what she does is to use pattern logic and adaptive action and inquiry to establish contexts in which people with Alzheimer's function at their highest possible level. A world that they're familiar with, that's comfortable with them. So the space that they're in matches whatever the space they're competent of seeing in cognition, and it releases their potential uh, to be present. Uh, in a social space again. I, I feel I want to end the recording with me still grappling where to position HSD actually. For me, it feels at best like a, like almost like a meta cognition or a meta methodology because the more I discover it the more I discover I actually already intuited most of the pieces I was just not using them so consistently and I was not aware of putting them into templates and how to sequence them that's one way I would say that's the broadest understanding grappling with trying to position it in a narrower sense when i see it in an in a set of toolboxes for cultural change techniques um i really love the simplicity the the compatibility with other techniques and that it is really agnostic to background you don't need to be spiritual you don't need to be very intuitive you don't need to be very let's say uh, intellectual but also you don't need to be like a specialist in anything it's almost as if hsd were complementing something like mindfulness which in my understanding mindfulness is also more like a, a meta faculty that you continue developing 
but there's no end to it. You just become more refined and more refined kind of whatever, 10 years later, you're becoming aware of even subtler aspects of your own being and the way your mind works and maybe consciousness itself or something like that. And complementary in the sense of, I've really not made this up, this now life, complementary really in the sense of as we approach reality, I really now mean this rather in a realist ontological way, you know, most of us need to work, some of us have children, we all need, we are all going to die, we as the human race are truly collectively, you know, faced with entangled wicked issues of a scale, size and complexity unbeknownst to us ever as a human race. For me, that's just I mean, it's just a factual statement, right? And I know I'm left-wing, I'm tattooed and whatnot, but, you know, even, even most conservative politicians today would at least acknowledge some of the entangled wicked issues. Um, and it seems like HSD can be recommended to people that are already highly educated, highly specialized, they have multiple trainings, that's one way. But also, I have the feeling if I had been given this very simple core concepts at the age of, let's say, 16, 18, 20, like I would say towards the end of high school, something like that, I could have made a lot of sense working with them and applying them to my real world decisions. What do I want to study? Uh, do I really want to take a year off and stuff like that? So it feels like infinitely customizable, like all the way up and all the way down. Anyhow, this were uh, many words from, from myself. How, how do you feel like it's wrapping so up lovely. our, our, it's so our lovely. dialogue? It's so lovely, the theory and the practice. Uh, two things. One is we have many kindergarten teachers in our network, and they teach their kindergartners HSD so that the children are using adaptive action to help each other learn to read. And so at that level, and also at the very farthest ranges of being able to see, understand and influence global issues in radically different ways, um, it's that whole scale up and down. So I really appreciate your seeing that. The second thing is about the practicality of it, the kind of down and dirty, you can use it without knowing anything about it and the need to be in that realist camp. Well, the last thing Plato said before he died, Socrates said before he died, the last thing Socrates said before he went with the hemlock was, I owe a cock to Escavalus. Would you please make sure that that debt is paid? And then he died. And so no matter how much we are aware of or engaged in theoretical work we are still human beings inhabiting bodies and those bodies have to be fed and those relationships have to be fed as well and so i think that that aspect that embodied realist aspect of our experience as a civilization is what's going to get us through whatever comes um, and so the more that we can give tools and capacity to that i think the more likely we will be to come through at home I have nothing to add to that beautiful philosophical, metaphorical, juicy end, Glenda. Cool. May, may we as a collective species discover the ingenuity we all possess and use the collaborative advantage we all have to work more together all the way up all the way down to solve hopefully i don't think all but let's hope at least some of the wicked issues we collectively face thanks for the conversation glenda you're welcome thank you alistair what a lovely invitation thank you